Democrats have turned on the Clintons. Me too. Hashtag me too. I guess I was never for the Clintons and I'm still not. Me too. The New York Times ran a column by Michelle Goldberg in which the columnist stated that she believes Bill Clinton raped Juanita Broderick. That ran in November 2017. The Atlantic ran a piece in November 2017 titled Reckoning with Bill Clinton's Sex Crimes. Also November 2017. The Washington Post ran a piece titled Democrats are trying to reckon with Bill Clinton's alleged sex crimes. It's not going well. Guess when that ran? November 2017. November 2017. You know, one full year after all of those outlets were campaigning hard to put Bill Clinton back in the White House. One full year after Democrats, after feminists, after all of the Me Too lapel pin wearing, pussy hat clad activists did everything in their power to put Bill Clinton back in the White House. But in November 2017, something changed. Despite every effort to deny the results of the 2016 election, the Clintons were finished in electoral politics and Democrats needed to attack Republican candidates for October surprise sexual allegations, but they had trouble doing so when they had denied and covered up Bill Clinton's far more credible decades long allegations of sex crimes up to and including the rape of Juanita Broderick in 1978. When Clinton's sex crimes mattered, Democrats denied them, buried them, said they didn't matter. When there was no electoral cost to throwing out pervy Democrats, as with the case of Al Franken or the Clintons post-2016, they did it when there was no cost. When there was electoral cost, as with the case of Bob Menendez last year or the Clintons pre-2016, they vigorously defended them. Today we are joined by Juanita Broderick to discuss her firsthand experience outlined in her new book, You'd Better Put Some Ice on That, How I Survived Being Raped by Bill Clinton. The Clintons, the Me Too movement, feminist hypocrisy, and more. I'm Michael Knowles, and this is The Michael Knowles Show. Big show today, and before we get to that, we have to thank our sponsors who keep the lights on in this place. And they're very good. We actually use them, too, uh, as a matter. We didn't use them when I got hired. When I got hired, they walked to the... Uh, the sidewalk in front of the insane asylum and Drew Clavin plucked me out of uh, the gutter and brought me in here and gave me a show, which was very nice. But for everybody else, we've gotten to use ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter is this tremendous new software or new uh, platform rather. If you're hiring, every business needs great people and they need a better way to find them. Something better than posting your job online and just praying for the right people to see it. That was the old way in the internet is you would just put a post to a job board and then you, I don't know, cross your fingers and hope that somebody saw it as it went into the oblivion of the internet. Um, ZipRecruiter knew there was a smarter way, so they built a platform that finds the right candidates for you. Uh, ZipRecruiter learns what you are looking for, identifies people with the right experience, and invites them to apply to your job. So you're not just throwing spaghetti at the wall and saying, well, I hope this good person that we need to hire sees this. You know, hiring is really tough. And if you make a mistake hiring, it can be very expensive. It can take a long time. It can really bog down your business, especially when you're growing fast. You have to hire multiple people. You can't just rely on chance. Chance is not a business model. Luck is not a business model. You need to have good uh, platforms to do this. So ZipRecruiter is very different in that it actually looks for the candidates for you, invites them to apply, lets them know that there's an opportunity for them. Uh, these invitations have revolutionized how you find your next hire. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in, guess how long? What would you say? A month, a couple weeks or something? One day. 
takes them one day. 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. That's incredible. ZipRecruiter doesn't stop there. They even spotlight the strongest applicants you receive so you never miss a great match. Because I know you, you know, you're probably a little, a little on the lazy side, you're a little tired, maybe you don't have a lot of covfefe pumping through you, it's the end of the week, and so what you get to do is you're looking at this, you're staring blankly at the screen, and probably looks like, and then you see, it says, pick this guy, look at this guy, and it makes it very easy for you. The right candidates are out there, ZipRecruiter is how you find them. Businesses of all sizes trust ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs. For instance, when I need to hire a ghostwriter to not write my next book, I'm gonna probably gonna have to use ZipRecruiter. It's a small business, but you need to use a good site. Right now, my listeners, don't say I never did nothing for you, can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, for free, full stop. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash MKS. That is ZipRecruiter.com slash MKS. What is it? ZipRecruiter.com slash MKS. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. By the way, before we get into it, I, I want to bring Juanita on right, up, right off the top. Before we get into it, I do want to make one point with regard to a show last week. I did a show on Bill Buckley where I had my college professor and my friend of many years, Al Felsenberg, on to talk about Buckley. But then I, I saw the replay and there was this audio issue where I could not hear his audio stream while I was asking questions. There's probably a grander metaphor to this, but as a technical matter, I couldn't hear him. So I didn't hear some of his interjections during that discussion, which is too bad because I heard them on replay and I actually want to quibble with some of those interjections, but it's too late now. I just wanted to point that out uh, because it looks like I was just steamrolling him. So I want to apologize to Professor Felsenberg and the audience. And uh, I certainly would never do that intentionally. And hopefully that issue is fixed now as we bring on today's guests, Juanita Broderick is a former nursing home administrator from Van Buren, Arkansas, and the author of a new book. You'd better put some ice on that, How I Survived Being Raped by Bill Clinton. Juanita, thank you so much for being here. Hey, Michael. Thanks for asking. Uh, Juanita, your, your life is obviously so much more than one incident, particularly such an awful incident that anybody would want to bury and forget. But April 25th, 1978 changed your life. You titled your book, You'd Better Put Some Ice on That. Why? That was exactly what Bill Clinton said to me after he had bitten my lip, which was swollen about three times the size that it should be. It was bleeding. And as he left the room, that's what he said to me. You'd better put some ice on that. Very coldly. In the book, you, you tell this experience very graphically. I don't want to make you go into that here and, and make you relive it on the show. But as, he, as he's heading toward the door, he looks at you, he says, you'd better put some ice on that. Is there any look on his face of remorse or of anything? What, what is, how does somebody say that to a person they've just victimized? I have no idea, Michael. It was just so blatant. It was just so cold. And uh, the phrase that he said to me just before that, before he put on his coat, I was sitting up on the side of the bed. I was crying. And he just looks at me very bewildered. And he makes this very weird statement. And he says, I'm sterile. Don't worry. I had mumps when I was a child. And I, that, that to me was the most bizarre statement uh, that anyone could make after raping someone. Uh, but then when he calmly walked to the door and he motioned with his hand to my lip 
and puts on his sunglasses and says, you better put some ice on that, and then just walks out the door like, like it was an everyday thing. Well, obviously, there have been multiple victims of Bill Clinton, so I don't know if it was an everyday thing, but clearly there was a pattern. And it's, it's that image that you, you discuss is so haunting because we have this image of Bill Clinton on the Arsenio Hall show with his saxophone and putting his sunglasses on. Now we have a very different image of Bill Clinton with those sunglasses. You said he wore the sunglasses to the hotel room. Was he hoping not to be noticed? Yes, yes. Well, I, I, I assumed, I just, I can still remember four decades ago when I opened the door and there he stood in a dim lit hallway with his sunglasses on. That's the first thing that should have tipped me off. Uh, but, but I still let him come into the room. I mean, this was the attorney general. And uh, even though I thought that was extremely strange, I let that go by. Now, you, you write in the book that Bill Clinton apologized to you in 1991. So this is decades after the incident. This is 13 years after the incident. H how did he apologize and, and why did he apologize? Right, right. I, when I was at a nursing home, now I had had a, a, a letter from the state in 1984. I had... I hadn't had any contact with Bill Clinton except when he would try to get in touch with me on the phone after the rape. He would call my nursing home, and I would tell him to tell him I'm not there. But in 1984, I got a letter for being the best nursing home in the state of Arkansas. And across the bottom of it, he had scrolled, I admire you very much, Bill. And I thought that was so, so strange, you know, to me, he was saying, I admire you for keeping quiet. Right. And then in 1991, uh, I was down at a nursing home meeting with the same nurse who was with me the day of the rape uh, and her sister. We were down there at a meeting. And all of a sudden, a gentleman comes to the door and said, Mrs. Broderick is wanted in the hall. So I get up and walk out and the nurse's come behind me. They're following a little ways behind me. And the gentleman points down around the corner toward the elevator. And he said, you're wanted down there. And I was alarmed that it was an emergency from home. Uh, but anyway, as I go and I go around the corner, there stands Bill Clinton. And he's standing there with two, I assumed, Arkansas State policemen. And he walks away from them, comes toward me. And this was shocking. I mean, I hadn't been in this man's presence in 13 years, and and it was just shocking to see him standing there. And he rushes over to me, tries to take my hand, and I start backing up from him. And he keeps saying, he started saying these things like, I'm so sorry for what I did. I'm a changed man. Uh, I'm a family man. I'm just not that same person anymore. Something I'm paraphrasing, but that was the essence of what he was saying to me. And I just looked at him and I, I, didn't, I didn't say anything for a minute. And he just stood there with his puzzled look on his face. And I looked at him and I said, you go to hell. And I turned and walked away back to the where the nurses were standing. So this, after the incident, he's, he tries to get in touch with you. And, and uh, as you write in the book, a, a very bizarre behavior. I mean, just as bizarre as leaving the room and saying, put some ice on that and don't worry, I'm right. sterile. And, and then he comes in 1991 and that timing seems a little coincidental. Was he just tying up a loose end? Yeah. 
Oh, exactly. But I didn't know it at the time. In fact, the nurses and I, we went to on our lunch break right after that. And we began to, to, to uh, feel a little bit sympathetic with him. And we would say, I told him what he had said. And they said, well, do you think he really means it? And then I got to feeling bad because I told him, told him to go to hell. And <laughs> oh I my thought, gosh. I, I really did. And uh, so it was about two weeks later that he announced he was running for president. And I thought, that's the reason. But you know what frightened me is that he knew where I was. At that at that moment in time, that really frightened me as much as him calling me out of the meeting and apologizing to me. It frightened me that he knew my whereabouts. This is the, the question that very often comes up, and not just with you, but other victims of sexual crimes, is, well, why didn't you right away file a police report? Why didn't you make a, a big deal about it? Why didn't you tell everybody? And you, you bring up this point of, this is a powerful man and he knows where I am. Uh, it, was that your feeling right after the incident? Did that feeling grow by the time that it's 1991 and he can find you quickly? Uh, what was what was that journey like? No, that that didn't bother me. What bothered me more than anything was the time that I was in. Uh, in the 70s, you would people would say, "All oh, men will be men. Just deal with it." And I felt responsible, Michael, for allowing him to come to my room. I took the blame myself. I should never have. But that's the that's how it was back in the 70s. Uh, you allow a man to come to your room or be with you or in any way, and it's your it's the woman's fault. And also, this man was the attorney general. Right. He was the police. I never ever thought that I could go to the police in any way. And also, the Office of Attorney General and the Office of Governor, which he became shortly, operated and they regulated my nursing homes. He could have shut me down at a moment's notice. Of course, there's so much threat. And you, you see this throughout Bill Clinton's career, is this not just the personal depravity, but also the professional abuse of power constantly. It, one, one thing, uh, the book is a fascinating read, and it, I noticed it's self-published, and I think that is a great strength of the book. It doesn't read like it was written by some publishing executive or some famous editor. It reads much more unfiltered like that. It reads like you telling what happened. Why did you choose to self-publish? I'm sure any publishing house would have given you a book deal in two seconds with a big fat advance as well. Oh, no, no. In fact, when I submitted it to two or three different uh, publishers, they wanted nothing to do about my life before Bill Clinton. They only wanted to do with Bill Clinton. Mm. And I, I just felt like I was more than that. You know, my life, how my life was going along before I met Bill Clinton and what that rape did to me. Uh, you know, after I met him, I just thought it was so important to tell about my life and also about my struggles with my mom, who was an abuser, uh, who physically abused my sister and I. It was just an important story to, for me to tell. It, it was part of the survival in what I had gone through as a child and then got over all of that, became a successful businesswoman, owned my own nursing homes, and then I meet Bill Clinton. And I had to start all over again. It's so important, that context. I will say, having read the book, it, it just puts you into a context 
where if it were just some tabloid thing and this is one day that happened and maybe a couple of the follow-ups, you would have so many questions. You would say, how did this woman get here? What was she like? Can, can I relate to this person? Can I, what, what it was the circumstances of her life? And it really puts it into context and you do it very well in the book. Now, you talk about this also, obviously, in, in your uh, story about what happened. In 1998, in the Paula Jones affidavit, you said that Bill Clinton did not rape you, despite having told friends and family for years, from an hour after it happened, that he did rape you. Uh, why did you say otherwise 20 years later in that Paula Jones affidavit? Well, it was just like I was saying, Michael. My life was going along very well. I was successful, and I had seen what had happened to the other women who came forward, who, who were villainized, who were absolutely drugged through the dirt. And I did not want that to happen to me. I had, I had absolutely denied this for 20 years to anybody in the media who would ask. And I was just absolutely incensed that someone would out me for their own personal gain. It, it made me very angry. And I told my attorney at the time, I said, I'm not getting involved in this. You do anything, set up the deposition, I will deny it. And that's exactly what I did. I did not want involved. Uh, you know, uh, one thing, I always found it so tawdry when people would drag this out and say, look, in this one affidavit, she denied it when there are plenty of explanations why you've given plenty of explanations why you did that. But the, the, I think the most glaring evidence here is that independent counsel Ken Starr granted you immunity for perjury it, for, in the Jones affidavit if you would state honestly what did happen and you did state what happened, that he raped you, uh, but you said that he didn't bribe you. So your testimony to Ken Starr actually didn't help any obstruction of justice case against Bill Clinton. It's not as though Ken Starr said, I'll give you immunity if you say what we want you to say. Your testimony to Starr didn't further that case. You, you simply told the truth after consulting lawyers who said, you can't lie to the federal government. Right. That's exactly how it was. And I knew my son's an attorney. And he, whenever he found out that I was going to be deposed by Ken Starr and the FBI, he came to me and he said, Mom, it's time you've got to tell the truth. And I told him, I said, I can't. I, I just can't do that. And he said, it's time you're going to have to. So I listened to my son. I went there. And those attorneys and people that interviewed me were so courteous and so nice and so respectful and were very sympathetic to what had happened to me. But when they kept asking me questions, did, were you offered bribes? Were you threatened to keep quiet? I had to say no. Right, because you, you, weren't, you weren't threatened in any overt way by the Clinton team. But this does bring us to the, the former future president herself, Hillary Clinton. What was Hillary's role in all of this? Oh, my goodness. Hillary Clinton. Now, if you go back to 1978, I was in a daze for probably two or three months. I was in shock. There was a few people that, know, that knew, uh, but I just had to face this every day, what had happened to me, and try to go on with life. And then about three weeks after the rape, I, when I was volunteering for Clinton's campaign, I had set up a fundraiser with my friends, Buddy and Betty Criswell. They had a beautiful home here in Van Buren, and I thought, well, that's going to be a great place for a fundraiser. So I helped set that up. I got them to, uh, to say that they would have it at their home. 
And then as the time grew toward this, I knew I couldn't go. I knew that I just, I just didn't want to be in their presence at all. But I told Betty, I said, I'm going to run some information up to you. And I also had a few checks that people, when I would go around in the evenings and put up yard signs, I had about three or four checks for $25 or less. And I gave those to Betty and I was about to leave uh, about 15 minutes before the fundraiser began. And then as I start toward the front door, a gentleman comes over to me, a good friend. His name is Charles Watts. And he comes over to me. He was the one that drove him from the airport. And he said, I've just got to tell you that the topic of the conversation all the way from the airport was the Clintons asking me questions about you. And, man, I just froze. I thought, I've got to get out of here. Right. But before I could, here comes Hillary Clinton straight for me. And, you know, I even relate to this in the book. As she started toward me, my thoughts were, here comes that poor woman that's married to that monster. I mean, I, I was I was thinking, how am I even going to say anything to her after what her husband did to me? And she comes over to me, very pleasant, smiling, uh, takes my hand and begins to say, I just want you to know how appreciative Bill are. Bill and I are for everything that you do in the campaign. And I think I just sort of nodded because I was just in shock and started to walk toward the door. And as I did, I feel somebody grab me from behind. And I think it's somebody wanting to tell me goodbye. They knew I was leaving. And uh, I turn around and it's Hillary Clinton that has a hold of my arm. And she pulls me down to her and that. There, there's not. It's not a pleasant smile anymore. It's a very much of a angry frown. And she pulls me down to her, and she says, "Do you understand everything you do?" And that's when I, I, I thought, "My God, I've got to get out of here." That was a threat, and that was just like being raped all over again. And at that moment in time, I felt like she knew what had happened to me. It certainly sounds like she does, and that double whammy of, of you're expecting this this woman to you to have some, for you to have some empathy for her, or vice versa, and then and then a, a very thinly veiled threat. It, you know, one thing about this. So, so you you see Hillary Clinton here. She says this thing to you, and and then publicly you're silent for many years. And you, obviously, the story was percolating in the press. You would get calls from reporters, but you turn them down. Finally, you relent and you grant an interview to Lisa Myers of NBC. And then NBC didn't run the interview. Eventually, Britt Hume of Fox News started wearing a free Lisa Myers button on his own program. Eventually, much later, NBC, under pressure, aired the interview. Why did it take so long? Well, I don't think they would have ever aired it had it not been for Dorothy Rabinowitz. She showed up at my home and did a, a Juanita Broderick meets the press. This, this was in the Wall Street Journal, is that right? Yes, 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 in the Wall Street Journal. And I think then the public outrage, you know, for the uh, interview to be shown was really mounting. And of course, when they did show it, it was after the impeachment. Th that timing is crucial because this has been going on in NBC for a long time, but they buried it. And... Uh, when you spoke to people from NBC, when you spoke to uh, Lisa or whomever, Lisa Myers or anyone else there, 
did they give you any indication of why they wouldn't air it? Was it just simply they were they were flacking for Hillary Clinton, or, or rather, flacking for Bill Clinton? Uh, the, the the explanation that I got, I was I was getting angry with Lisa, and I should never have. The, really, Lisa was a hero in all of this, and I would get angry at her. And she said, "Well, she said they're still trying, Mr. Lack." Mr. Lack <laughs> wants to have further investigation. And they found out nothing after that time that it was supposed to have been aired in the middle of the impeachment. Right. They found out nothing new. That, that, that They held it because they, they didn't want to uh, uh, have this shown during the impeachment. There's no other question. I mean, that's, that's exactly why it was held. You know, that, that's Andrew Lack, right? NBC president? Yes. And he was uh, he was friends with Bill Clinton. Yes, yes, he played golf with him. Uh, one of the NBC producers told me, she said, well, you know, uh, um, Mr. Clinton and Mr. Lack play golf quite frequently. And I think that was just a little tiding that, that they gave to me to try to understand why it was not being aired. I mean, I had put my heart and soul into that and absolutely bared my to the bone in that interview and for them to hold it like that was just like a slap in the face well th you know this is what happens so frequently at mainstream outlets when they when they have something like a dirt on Democrats or they get a big expose they'll they'll hold it and and they'll just keep it so it's a little carrot hanging over you oh we've already done this we've got it but no we're not going to hold it did they ever tell you they say well if the, the it's not good enough it's not sorry this isn't convincing enough and that's why we're not going to air it or they just stonewalled you no they just stonewalled completely incredible that's incredible now you know it's a related story and i speaking of golfing buddies in nbc news norm mcdonald the comedian relates this that he lost his job at saturday night live because he was making jokes about oj simpson and don olmeyer an nbc executive said oh he's my golfing buddy we're going to fire you we're going to bury this story and and you see you see this for a long time at, at places like nbc and nbc in particular then we get to 2016 you, you speak out during the 2016 presidential race. You had every right and reason to do it, but what did motivate you to try to stop Hillary Clinton? Oh my goodness. It, the, at the, in November or December, she uh, was uh, uh, lecturing at a university for women or something like that. And she put this on her tweet that every victim of sexual sexual abuse should come forward and be believed and be supported. And that just went all over me. And I thought, how dare you, Hillary Clinton? How dare you, the one who intimidated and frightened the victims of your husband? Yeah, it just, it absolutely, I had stayed quiet, you know, for so long. And I thought, good gosh, I've got to answer this somehow. And I thought, I had, didn't know how to use Twitter. I had to get my grandson to show me how to use Twitter. <laughs> and so on the, I know, I know I couldn't get it to go through. And so finally he explained to me what was going on and how I had to do it. He did not know what I was going to tweet, but, uh, uh, he did help me get, get on Twitter and, and decide and see how to use it. So I sat and got my statement just like I wanted it. And did not say anything, Michael, that I hadn't said for the last 
20 years. I mean, the last 40 years. And uh, I thought, well, that looks good. I believe I'll just tweet that. So I punched tweet. And I mean, just like I said in the book, all hell broke loose. It was uh, my phone started ringing off the wall and people, I get, there were so many people that didn't know. You know, so many people out there, millions, that had no idea that I had been on Dateline in 1999 and, and told about my rape by Bill Clinton. So many didn't know. So it was a news story all over again. There is an amazing vindication in this moment. I, I didn't realize until I read the book that you weren't on Twitter before this, but Hillary sends out this egregious tweet, this jaw-dropping tweet, which says... Uh, you have the right to be heard. You have the right to be believed. We're with you to every survivor of sexual assault. Hillary Clinton, of all people, to say this. And then for you to get this is so long since the event, uh, the me media Democrats have pushed you to the side and you send out one tweet that you have trouble sending out, that you need your grandson to help you send out one tweet. And it is the tweet heard around the world. All hell breaks loose. And all of a sudden, people are starting to take this seriously. And, and there is clearly a, a parallel here between the traditional media and the new media. The traditional media buries your interview on NBC. They won't let you speak. The new media, they, they're not those gatekeepers anymore. When that, uh, when, when that tweet happened, what was your, was it a feeling of vindication? Was it a feeling of, of shock? that now perhaps I can, my, the culture is ready to hear the same story I've been telling for 40 years? Yeah, well, a little bit, Michael, but the first phone call, well, about the second or third phone call that I got was from my son. And my son said, you know, he's an attorney, and he said, Mom, what did you do? And I said, I don't know. I had no, I had no idea the power of Twitter. I had absolutely no idea what I had done, uh, but it wasn't, didn't take long before I, I did know. That was, and Twitter, and of course with uh, our dear President Kofefe, the t Twitter has played a keen role in the 2016 race. And, and so this brings us 38 years later, 38 years after Bill Clinton is in your hotel room, the Clintons are finally vanquished from politics. President Trump says he believes you, he, he brings you out in the campaign. What did the Trump victory mean for you personally? Oh, it was like this huge weight had been lifted off of my shoulders. It, my son had a, 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 a political party, you know, for the voting and, and for watching the returns. And uh, he said, Mom, come over and be with us during this. He didn't think Trump would win, and, and I didn't either. I was <laughs> None of us did. I, think, I yeah. didn't think so. But I didn't. I, and I told him, I said, I just don't feel well. Well, the truth was I had to go through that by myself. So I stayed here alone to watch the return. Right. And when, and Michael, when it happened, I felt like a new person. I felt like that all of that threat and intimidation and all I had gone through for 38 years was finally going away. I felt so relieved. It is, it's an amazing story because uh, I'm, I'm so pleased that you chose to self-publish the book because you do get this whole life and you get a lot of tribulation here and you get particularly one awful event and it's uh, constantly a process of you creating something of yourself, becoming a, 
uh, running a nursing home, becoming the president of your nursing home association, uh, you know, being a professional success, and having this weight over you, and that final comeuppance is uh, is really a joy. And I, I love the last chapter of the book too. I think it ends on a really nice note. So I, I really encourage everybody to go get it. You can get it on Amazon. I know uh, you'd better put some ice on that. How I survived being raped by Bill Clinton, and you certainly did survive. And Juanita, thank you so much for being here. Really, really uh, wonderful to talk to you. Oh, Michael, thank you so much for having me. All right, we've got to get to the news. We do have to cover a little bit of news today. That was so excellent. All right, I wanted to keep the, the live stream going for Facebook and what used to be the audience on YouTube before they started censoring us, uh, just to hear all of that because it's really, really uh, powerful stuff from Juanita Broderick, and I highly recommend getting her book. But now we got to say goodbye to you. We have to say goodbye unless you're on dailywire.com. If you are on dailywire.com, thank you very much. You help us keep the lights on. Uh, you help. <laughs> we could not have planned that any better. <laughs> that is unbelievable. Shockwaves going through Los Angeles. More you need to sign up so that we can keep those lights on a little bit longer. Go to dailywire.com. It is $10 a month, $100 for an annual membership. You get me. You get the Andrew Clavin Show. You get the Ben Shapiro Show. You get the conversation with Ben Shapiro that will be coming up. Uh, uh, March 13th. It is the conversation Tuesday, March 13th at 5.30 p.m. Eastern, 2.30 Pacific, featuring the one and only Ben Shapiro. Subscribe today to be a part of this hour-long live Q&A and ask Ben questions, which he will answer for everyone to hear. Now, everybody can watch, but only a few people can ask questions. Many are called, few are chosen. It will stream live on the Ben Shapiro Facebook page and the Daily Wire YouTube channel, and it will be free for everyone to watch, but only subscribers can ask the questions. To ask a question as a subscriber, log into dailywire.com, head over to the conversation page, watch the live stream. After that, just start typing into the Daily Wire chat box where Ben will answer questions in the order that they are posed. I will tell you folks, all nature is but art unknown to thee, all chance direction which thou canst not see. Once again, subscribe to get your questions answered by Ben Shapiro, Tuesday, March 13th. We need like five more subscribers to make sure the lights don't go out again. <laughs> that will be 5.30 Eastern, 2.30 Pacific. Join the conversation. But actually, that doesn't really matter because what you really get are the leftist tears tumblers. You really need to get this, folks. It's the only FDA-approved device to store your salty and delicious radioactive leftist tears. Go to dailywire.com right now. We'll be right back. All right. Do we have time to cover a little bit of news? We can cover a little bit of news today. We can't. We have to start with Sam Nunberg. Here he is on CNN. Talked earlier about what? people in the White House were saying about you. Yeah, Talking about whether you, you, were, you were drinking or on drugs or whatever they uh, had happened today. Um, talking to you, yeah. I have smelled alcohol in your breath. Well, I, I have not had a drink. You haven't had a drink, so that's no. not true. No. So I, I just, because it is the talk out there, again, I know it's awkward, let me just get, give you the question well, so you can uh, categorically I, I answer No, you have you had a drink answer, today? My answer is no, I have not. Anything else? No. 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 Besides my meds. Okay. Antidepressants, is that okay? No, I, th I mean, I'm not, I'm just trying to understand. Well, look, well, look, they can say, today. they can say whatever they want. I don't really care. Yikes. That is, it, when your excuse for not being drunk is that you're only on your meds, that's not a good excuse. That is not a 
really rough. I actually think it was journalistic malpractice. This guy, Sam Nunberg, was a Trump aide before the campaign. He was a Trump aide in 2014 and 2015, uh, and then he got fired twice in 2014 and 2015. And they had him on the air like three or four times yesterday on CNN and MSNBC. Sometimes he called in. He clearly sounded drunk. Uh, the word about town is that he does have a drinking problem. As Aaron Burnett said, she smelled booze on his breath. He's also, I guess, on prescription medications. They're trying to make a big deal out of this because he's saying, yeah, they're going to get Trump and I'm not going to cooperate with Mueller. And okay, I will cooperate with Mueller and da, 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 da. And they're making big hay out of this as always. Guys, calm down for one second and ask yourself, is this person credible? Can, can that you have to, whenever people make extraordinary claims, we've been talking about claims for all, the whole show today and some claims are credible and demonstrable and some are not. Look at this guy. Well, what do we know about him? Uh, apparently he has a drinking problem. He's on prescription medication. He comes off as though he, he's drunk. Uh, he worked for Donald Trump in 2014 before he ran for president, got fired, worked for him again in 2015, again, before he ran for president, got fired. He, the, the alleged collusion, the big Boris and Natasha meeting was a full year later at Trump Tower. He had absolutely nothing to do with that for a year. The only person that he knew on the campaign that he was sort of friends with is Roger Stone, who also got fired in 2015. So th there's, and Roger Stone is the most famous dirty trickster in all of Republican politics. Is this guy credible? Of course not. I kind of feel bad for him. They really shouldn't have trotted him out like this. This is a guy who is clearly very troubled. And, uh, but you can't, you can't possibly take what he says uh, seriously. There isn't, there isn't that level of credibility. So it's, it's like the guy who wrote Fire and Fury, who basically admitted, yeah, I'm lying, but you want to believe it. I think that's basically how the media responded to this. Yeah, he's a, a bloviating drunk, but you want to believe it. So that's Sam Nunberg. We have to talk about these tariffs. Donald Trump is threatening tariffs on uh, steel and aluminum. Everybody is losing their minds on the conservative side of the aisle. Conservatives are free traders. I'm a free trader. Free trade is a wonderful thing. It increases prosperity for everybody involved. They're pretending like the world is falling down and this is unprecedented. The Republican Party was founded as a staunchly protectionist party. Its first president, Abraham Lincoln, was staunchly protectionist. And luckily, we've gotten a little freer over time on economics as the global economy has freed up and prospered. But uh, all Republican presidents specifically love steel tariffs. Uh, Richard Nixon loved steel tariffs. Ronald Reagan loved steel tariffs. And both Bushes loved steel tariffs. And by the way, the tariff is addressing something that's real. China subsidizes their steel industry. That's not very free trade. Uh, there is a global excess of, uh, of steel production. According, even the OECD recognizes this uh, problem. Uh, it what we don't want is a trade war. That's the reason we don't want tariffs is we don't want a trade war where everybody loses. Is this going to lead to a trade war? I don't know. Did it lead to a trade war under, under all of the previous Republican presidents? Was it good for trade? Was it bad for trade? We can debate that. The one thing we know about Donald Trump is that he always takes an extreme position to get leverage in a negotiation, and then he calms down a little bit. So for instance, he said, we're going to deport every illegal alien in the country. We're going to build a giant wall immediately, and Mexico is going to pay for it. Did that happen? Not quite. Have we gotten a little bit tougher on immigration? Seems we have. I, that's clearly the, where he's starting from. He said the other day, didn't make me very happy. He said he was going to take all of our guns and then have due process later. Within 24 hours, he said we need to respect the Second Amendment. I try not to lose my mind when Donald Trump says things. He says a lot of things. This, that's not an argument for more tariffs when Reagan does it or Bush does it or Trump does it, but it is to say that this is not out of the ordinary for Republican presidents at all. Finally, today, there are primaries in Texas. 
Uh, the media are trumping this up, pun very much as always intended, uh, as a preview of what we're going to get in November. What does this mean for the GOP chances in November? Looking ahead, I don't want to make predictions. I have a nice $400 check on my table over there to show why it's not a great idea to make predictions sometimes. <laughs> Put your money on it. Thank you, Mr. Shapiro. So what does this mean in November? Historically speaking, the party in power loses the House. Uh, historically speaking, we're likely to lose the House, especially as a Republican because we've got the whole media apparatus against us. That said, there are 23 Republican seats in Congress that Hillary won in 2016. It's not good. But let's not forget, there are a dozen Democrat seats in Congress that Donald Trump won. And by the way, some of those seats that Hillary won was by one percentage point or two percentage points in places like Texas, where Donald Trump, we were told, is going to start crazy wars, excuse me, shoot nuclear missiles everywhere, destroy the economy. None of that happened. I wonder if that one to two percentage point margin for Democrats is really going to remain or if it's going to just collapse once we see that the sky has not fallen down. Right now, so we've got 23, we've got a dozen uh, is where that even, so you're talking about 11, 11 states or 11 seat swing. The GOP has a 45 seat advantage in the house right now. Doesn't mean we're not going to lose it. If his, history is any indication, we are going to lose the house. But if conservatives are energized, there's a chance that we keep the house. There's a fair chance. I'm energized. The Heritage Foundation, which says that Donald Trump is affecting their conservative agenda at a faster rate, even than Ronald Reagan. The Heritage Foundation is energized. Democrats have tried to sap our energy with all this useless nonsense like Sam Nunberg and Russia and blah, blah, blah. But I'm energized. I hope you're energized too, because if, if we somehow magically hold the house, oh my gosh, I'm going to need a warehouse full of these leftist tears dumplers. It is going to be tremendous. Huge folks. Going to be huge. Okay. That's our show. Come back tomorrow. I'm Michael Knowles. This is the Michael Knowles show. I'll see you then. The Michael Knowles show is a daily wire forward publishing production. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Senior producer, Jonathan Hay. Supervising producer, Mathis Glover. Our technical producer is Austin Stevens. Edited by Alex Zingaro. Audio is mixed by Mike Coromina. Hair and makeup is by Jesua Overa. Copyright Forward Publishing 2018.